Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today we'll be discussing the article titled Variable but Not Random Temporal Pattern Coding in a Songbird Brain Area Necessary for Song Modification. This article was published December 9, 2020. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and co-authors Professor Stephanie Palmer and Professor Mimi Cow. So let's get started. Hello, Mimi, and hello, Stephanie. It's so wonderful that you are part of this uh, podcast. And I have to tell you, I'm a big fan of all your work, even though a lot of the things, the theories, I don't totally understand, but that's why we sit together. And uh, hopefully we can explain the importance of your studies, because I think uh, it addresses a very important aspect of neuroscience. And it's about how do we encode information so I think first would be great if you can summarize the key findings of your study and highlight also the important take-home messages so the listener uh, basically gets the background to your study. Thanks. I'll start with that one. What we did was to analyze the spiking patterns in this brain area that's crucial for song learning in the zebrafish. What Mimi was able to do, which is truly remarkable, is to record from these male birds, both while they're singing the song to a female and while they're practicing alone by themselves. And Mimi had quantified a difference in the spiking characteristic between these two states when performance or practice. And what we see is that there are many, many, many more high firing rate bursts during practice. And what we did in this paper was ask, are those just noise that's coming in while the bird is doing maybe this loosey-goosey, trying different things out? Or if we analyze the data a bit more carefully and we use a way of looking at the temporal patterns in that practice, do we see that those bursts actually code for different parts of song? And that's how we started this investigation. We found that indeed they do. And I would just add that this was one of you know, the first times that information theory has been used to study activity that's important for motor production and not for a sensory response. And so that was something that was new in the paper as well. Thank you for the answers and, and the explanation. And I think the key question is, you know, like how do we practice and how does practice make us perfect? And, uh, and so it's really an incredible, fascinating finding that the bursts actually play a big role. And do you think this is a fundamental issue also for how we as mammal encode information? And, uh, you know, the whole brain is full of bursting and rhythmic activity. And can you speculate on this? I think that's a fabulous question. And I think one thing that we found in this paper is that having the theory experimental collaboration be so tight lets you pull that apart. So I'd say, let's go, let's go look other places. The beauty of this, the heroic beauty of this was, as Mimi said, that you're not replaying a stimulus to a sensory system. You're asking the bird to do the same thing over and over. And what Mimi was able to do was to get these birds to perform the song sometimes hundreds of times. So that is really what you needed to be able to analyze these bursts. You needed enough data. That was a huge challenge. So I think in other brain areas and other systems, if you have a Professor Cow, Mimi, you can get this done. But, that, but that's one of the main lessons is that when you have enough data to look more closely, sometimes you discover really interesting 
things? And I think that is the key question. How do, how do our brains sort of explore the space around the task that we're trying to learn? How do we maintain flexibility while also maintaining our very practiced performance state? How do we have both of those things in our repertoire at the same time? And it's not unique to song breaks necessarily, but I like the idea about behavioral context, right? This is a social context-driven change. The male is singing either by himself, he's practicing, when he sings to a female, there's a really big change in the firing statistics of the same neuron, right? So it fires precise song-locked activity, but they're single spikes, they're not bursting. The importance of looking at behavioral context. This was actually first really found by Neil Hessler, who is a postdoc with Alison Dope, and he was just a great experimentalist. And he heard the changes in the activity, you know, when he put the female in or when he took her out. It was a quite a surprising finding. Tell me, so very naively put, so let's say you're a basketball player, you you practice all the time, you know, get, getting that hoop. But then when you're actually in the actual game, you have to switch into a different state. And the songbird basically has replicated the same kind of strategy, it has the practice part, which is different, and then switches suddenly in this other song. I think what's interesting about that comparison that you're drawing there is that for the basketball player or for a concert pianist, we could go ask them, hey, you're practicing. What are you trying? What are you trying to mix up here? Are you trying to make sure that you can get, you know, a perfect swish? Or are you trying to fiddle with this one piece and this one movement? What are you trying to do? And we don't get to interrogate the birds in the same way. So part of what this an analysis technique lets you do is pry that pry that open without being able to have the conversation with the bird. Also, a lot of people are not aware how amazing the songbird is because it's such a complex song that has to be learned. And also, it's in the microsecond precision range in order to be functional. So I think that that's, has to be totally emphasized. And it's only the songbird that does this because a monkey doesn't learn, you know, these vocal sequences to that extent. You know what? One of the things in, in the paper as and you alluded to this is also the methods that allowed you to actually interrogate this and Mimi already alluded to this that it was the first time that you applied it could you explain it to someone like me who is kind of a lay person oh absolutely what's nice about the analysis technique is that it requires a bit of heavy lifting on the math side but you can explain the idea of it pretty simply so if we have a whole sequence of spikes across trials, think of them all as little plain vanilla sprinkles. And we can think of all those sprinkles as, as one kind of like symbol from that the brain is telling us. They're all plain vanilla sprinkles and we can see where those sprinkles line up. Now, when the bird is practicing by himself, instead of these single isolated sprinkles, we get jumbles, we get jumbles. And if they were, then they were all kind of clumped together. Now, if they're all still color-coded as plain vanilla sprinkles, it looks noisy. But if instead we say, ah, when there's sprinkle, pause, sprinkle, sprinkle, we're gonna color those purple. And then we'll wind up, we'll get this collection together and we'll have some purple purple uh, clusters of sprinkles. And then maybe if it's sprinkle, 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 we'll color those blue. And so then all of a sudden we have this rainbow of sprinkles instead of just all these plain vanilla single spike sprinkles. And then when we look at the patterns color by color, temporal pattern by temporal pattern, we see, oh my gosh, all the purple ones line up at this part of song. 
and all the blue ones line at this other line up at this other part of song, and it reveals to us that there was a structure there. Um, and to dig into that further, we have to ask how much does the the time and song modulate what sprinkle is happening at that time, which color. And to do that, we use some tools from information theory, which is a fancy way of saying a generalized correlation measure. And we ask about these strings of spike and silence, these temporal patterns. And that's where you need enough data. The real crux of that is, do you have enough data to sample that properly? Back to Mimi, our hero of the paper, managing to get 100, 200 renditions of the song from the same bird while she's holding that neuron. That's what made this possible to fish out the, the rainbow sprinkles. Unbelievable. Yeah, I really love Stephanie's analogy about sprinkles. And I just wanted to point out something that she did that might not be clear in it, which is there are these different color sprinkles, right? So purple is if you have spike, spike, pause, spike, and blue is if it's pause, pause, spike, spike, or something. But what Stephanie found was it's not just, you know, there are different ways you could say, well, it's blue and it's green. And so is it just the onset of that time? You know, is it the onset of this pattern? It's not just the onset of the pattern. It's not just the duration either. It's the actual pattern of spikes and silences that's really important, right? And that I think is something that's super exciting, right? That, it, that there's a real pattern code that she was able to fish out. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Tell me, staying with the sprinkles, can you use the same approach and recognize these sprinkles also at night when they're dreaming? Do you think that practicing in the undirected song and the ones that they do at night, are they similar? And does the, the night dreaming contribute as much to the practice as the day practicing? I love that question. And the answer is we just don't know. Um, we would need to track the bird during the day, kind of make a, make a list of what that neuron spat out in terms of what sprinkles, and then somehow keep track of that neuron at night or have a large enough population that we could have an overlapping sample while it's performing and while it's sleeping. And I think while we don't have those data in hand, perhaps the newest, latest, bestest methods for holding neurons for long periods of time will let us crack open exactly that to say, are you dreaming of practice or are you dreaming of the female and performing for her? Yeah, and the more you dream, maybe you become better. So it's, it's really an important question. Right, did you, did you revise something while you were sleeping? Did you pick, yeah. did, you, did you sort of explore a whole space while you were practicing during the day that you sort of filtered out at night and settled on the, oh yeah, I know that one. I'm gonna go up there. I'm definitely gonna go up there. That sounds great. <laughs> Who knows? We don't know, but that's a fascinating question and can give us insights into not only how you explore, but how you then add that to your performance state. And it would yeah. be cool, cool to see it in juvenile birds, right? So we did all of our experiments in adult birds who have already kind of mastered their song. There's, they're optimizing it, but it's not like a juvenile who's starting with something really messy and far from the target. And so maybe you would see that the types of patterns or the vocabulary decreases over time as the bird gets closer and closer to the target. Or maybe, you know, birds learn sounds sequentially sometimes. You know, they sing A, B, C, D, they learn A first, then they add B and they add C and they add D. And so you could look to see, is the vocabulary changing for those parts of song that are changing as the bird's learning. 
Thanks so much. And how did you see other individual differences between one bird and other birds that, that, you know, like, I mean, of course you try to normalize everything, but, but if you look at the individual bird, are there some geniuses that, you know, have right away the right temporal pattern and others not, and just, can you speculate on this? Yeah. So we did not look at that because we had males who had already learned their song. And actually what is interesting is that this um, difference that we saw between practice and performance states was quite robust across all birds, regardless of kind of when we recorded in their developmental stage, right? So you can see that the amount of variability in song kind of decreases with age and with practice. But Stephanie saw this difference between, you know, the types of coding in the two conditions in all of the neurons that we recorded. We didn't see, we just don't have enough data, I'd say, to look across individuals. But I think it would be super fun. So, Nina, you said we could speculate wildly. So I'm going to speculate wildly. We do find that the code switch is robust and reproducible in all the birds we were able, we had enough data to test. But we do know that bird by bird, they have a kind of different repertoire of colorful sprinkles. Some of them have more, some of them have more colors, some of them have fewer colors. They all have colors, but they are different. And what would be super fun to test, which I think Mimi's new experiments are gonna uncover this for us, is when something dramatic happens to you, how do you use that same flexibility and machinery to compensate? So our if you say are getting altered feedback or if you are deaf in one ear all of a sudden or both or something, something very dramatic happens to you. Did your previous sprinkle repertoire let you move faster? Did the size of that, of the, uh, the, the number of colors help, help you move faster or did it restrict it in any way? And I think that's a super, super fun question. And, and I would, I will, I think that would, be neat to explore, but you have to do a different kind of experiment. Just as Mimi said, you can't take the very practiced expert concert zebra finch and find it because they're making very, very subtle changes in their song. You need to do something drastic to see how that would play out. Again, I think it's a very general fundamental question, you know, like if you fall from the horse, you know, or if you have a bad performance and then you have a writer's block or, you know, composer block and all this thing so you know how long does it take you to come back from that shock is really an important question and could be addressed so the songbird wow great system so we talked a lot about the implications for now let's get to the neural mechanisms you know like so what do you think are the mechanism how you know the jitter changes or this, this the social context is encoded in affecting these neural signals do you have any neural explanation, neuromodulators, etc. Yeah, so there's been a lot of work looking at the role of dopamine in driving these context-dependent changes in neural activity. And so dopamine levels are higher in the basal ganglia in when the female is present compared to when the male is by himself. You can block dopamine receptors and show that you don't see the change that you normally would if a female is presented if you block dopamine receptors. So there has been a lot of emphasis on the role of um, neuromodulators. I think one thing that my lab is interested in moving towards is thinking about not just dopamine, but about um, acetylcholine, thinking about cholinergic signaling locally and how does it work together with the dopaminergic signals. 
And I'd say work from Allison Doak's lab, Sarah Woolley and Raga Rajan showed that these bursts, the, this variability in the firing, it emerges in the basal ganglia. They recorded at each step, you know, the input to the basal ganglia, those first neurons that get the input, the output to the pallidum, and from the pallidum to the thalamus. And you can see that at first, you know, the inputs are not different between the two contexts. But at that first stage, those medium spiny neurons that get the input from the cortex, they start to show a small context-dependent difference. And then you see in the palatal cells, this huge context-dependent difference. So it's emerging in the circuit in the basal ganglia. And so those are ongoing experiments by people to figure it out. Yeah, maybe we have uh, another podcast uh, in our series which, with Mark Schmidt, where he talks about the role of norepinephrine in, in, in the state, state setting. So if people want to listen more about this, I think they should go to that podcast. And I, I appreciate that you went into the neural circuitry and, and how basically you think it's a distributed pattern formation or encoding where different areas are working together. And, and I like very much in your figure, you know, where you have the song pathways versus the, uh, the mammalian equivalent. And can you tell us maybe in more detail about, you know, how these different areas kind of work together to end up, for example, in the ultimately in the HVC and then going down to RA. So how does LMAN versus area X work together to encode the information that you then see in the HVC before it goes out to RA? Difficult question, sorry. Well, I'll take a pass at it. Um, so HVC sends signals to the basal ganglia, this area X nucleus, and that is thought to give us a timestamp when in song, um, because HVC fires at specific times in the song. So it's a timestamp for where you are in song. And that signal is quite stereotyped regardless of context initially, right? But then when you get to the output of area X, that signal has been transformed. It still has information about time and song, but it is now context dependent. And that goes then to the thalamus and to LMAN, which is you know, the cortical output of this circuit. And in LMAN, we think that the pattern has been transformed. And so it is now variable, uh, much more variable than it was from HVC. And that's what's signaling RA, the motor cortical area that will signal song. So that's what's injecting the variability in song. I'm not sure if that answered the question. It was perfect. I really understood. Tell me, so is there evidence in the mammal that it works in a similar way, you know, for like premotor cortex and, and, uh, and the other areas, thalamus, pallidum, et cetera? Are there parallels that, that are known? And, and could you talk about it, speculate? I'd say actually songbirds, for a long time, people have been thinking in terms of you know, reinforcement theorists, have, you know, learning theorists have been thinking that there must be a source of variability. And in songbirds, we think we found what that source of variability is. And so people are now looking in other systems to see, could it be a source of variability in motor output in other systems, you know, like reaching movements or something like that. So there, there's been work from Bento Olvecki um, and from uh, the Smith lab looking at does greater variability in your movements then correlate with your ability to learn a particular motor task. They did a reaching task, right? And so these ideas are percolating and moving into other systems. Well, that's why Songbird is such a leader in the field. You know, it's really giving us ideas to, to, to go deeper into an, our understanding of encoding. Can, can I go a little bit more technical again? 
So you describe uh, temporal differences in the jitter between directed and undirected song. And how did you assess this information? How did you find out what a single spike has kind of information versus a burst and sequences? So how did you take this apart in order to get to this conclusion that we just discussed? So the thing that we had to do there was first of all, have lots of renditions of the same song from the same bird while we have the same neuron. So now we have, just like if you ran a visual experiment where you played the same movie over and over and over again, we have the same motor output over and over and over again. So we can align those trials and all those spike rasters. And that requires a little bit of warping because there's some variability in what the bird sings. It doesn't do exactly the same thing. So you, you have to kind of put them all at the same starting and end points. Once you do that, then you have to look at different kind of code words. You have to kind of be a code breaker. You have to say, okay, if it's, if it's single spikes that carry the information about where we are in song, because we're asking how much does the song modulate? How much is the modulation of the, of the firing of this code word telling me about what part of song I'm in? Because if it just sort of, if the neuron just kind of turns on and stays on the whole time, we just say, well, that's just song on. We want to know something more detailed. We want to know which syllable does it care about? Does it reliably care about that syllable? All these things. So you can start with single spikes and you have lots of data to do that. But then you want to start taking things apart in terms of temporal patterns. So the thing that you do is you take uh, maybe two adjacent bins. You say, what if I have one two millisecond bin and it's neighbor. And in there I can have two silences, I can have a spike and a silence, a silence and a spike or a spike and a spike. And I'm just gonna look through all my data and see what of those four patterns occur at every single point in song. And I'm gonna make a list of that. I'm gonna ask how each of those little patterns uh, is modulated by where I'm in song. And then you kind of build that out longer and longer until you get to, and basically until you start to run out of data. So you can't say things with good statistical confidence. And for us, we could get out to maybe five, six, seven, but we were really confident about five little bins. So it could be spike, spike, silent, silent, silence, or silent, spike, spike. And then we have, uh, you know, it grows kind of come exponentially. So we have two to the fifth different patterns and two to the fifth isn't that bad though. We can, we can deal with, we can deal with that um, because that's only 32, right? So now we have 32 things to track at each point in song instead of having just spike or silence. And when we have 32 things to track at each point in song, we're asking, well, how did, how did purple sprinkle go up and go down? How did blue one go up and go down? We have 32 different colors. And so when we do that, um, you can see that if you want to track 32 things as a function of time and song, you better have order of a few hundred trials at each point in time. So that's how we did it. The precise thing that we did was to compare essentially the probability of that different code word at each point in time. And whenever you're going to compare probabilities, you're going to be taking ratios of probability distributions. You're going to wind up taking logs because then things add up nicely. And as soon as you're taking logs of probabilities and ratios of probabilities, you're in the domain of information theory. And you're comparing how these distributions change. So technically speaking, we were using information theory to quantify how much each code word said about time and song. 
and then we assembled all that information and you know we're careful about you know making sure we hadn't kind of cherry picked anything and and had the general results across all birds and and song renditions fascinating tell me can you use the way the songbird basically learns and practices using these sequences can you write programs for computers to to learn better or faster or i mean can you apply this knowledge to computer learning and and machine learning you know this is a fantastic question because there's really a renaissance in machine learning happening right now that we've witnessed um, over the past let's call it eight years and one of the big hot topics more recently has been exactly about that how do you train networks how do you learn to learn how do you do reinforcement learning in neural networks how do we train neural networks across tasks so what you're trying to figure out there are what the essential elements that make brains so good at doing inference we're amazing inference machines and we don't want to we don't want to grab the aspects that are just the accident of the fact that we're made of squishy stuff we don't want to grab all the bits and pieces that just so happen because we have to make this out of cells that have certain time scales and where you can't get around it and it's chemistry and it's mucky so fine no we want the stuff that evolution discovered as a very very good solution to the problem so there i think there's a there's a huge opportunity and what you get when you take an approach like this where you see a high functioning brain doing something that the animal cares about intrinsically and at exquisite detail you have the opportunity to peer inside the black box and say aha this is so important to the animal it has to do it right this matters the patterns that i see are going to be important and they're going to they're going to sort of tell me what a good solution looks like and then you can move from there so i think that the exact connection from songbird learning to machine learning isn't completely solved yet but i think that's a fun avenue and it's you know why me as a theoretical physicist left theoretical physics and went to work um, with Alison Dope at UCSF. I was so inspired by the way that she thought about critical periods for learning. And, and I think that is still, a lot of us, our, our inspiration for studying the brain is, is exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's a spectacular machine. Extremely inspiring. Wow. So, so often, of course, this machine, being the human, doesn't work. And, and so what do you think can we learn for a translational medicine? You know, what are the diseases like neurodegenerative diseases? Can we apply this information there? Yes, I think we absolutely can. You know, we did a series of experiments where we did something that is like pallidotomy, um, removing the um, basal ganglia. And that was used as a treatment for Parkinson's disease a long time ago. Um, now it's been, it's switched to DBS, deep brain stimulation, but We looked to see what happens to the output, you know, of this cortical area, LMAN, if you take out its inputs, right? You take out the inputs from the basal ganglia. And what we found was that those neurons now um, no longer exhibit song-locked firing patterns. They do what Stephanie said, which is they fire when the bird is singing, so it's tonic increase, and then they go back down when they're not singing. But you've lost all of that information in the fine temporal patterns of the spikes. It's just on and off, on and off. And so that made us think, 
when there are neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease or Huntington's disease where you have aberrant activity, the key is to put in the right patterns back, right? Is there a way to re-instantiate patterns, not just to suppress it, right? And it told us that, are there smart ways to go in and put in uh, the right patterns so that the bird or the human can perform the task because we've driven aberrant activity in the circuit. And that in that paper, um, what was really interesting was the rate, the firing rate is changing in the right way. It's increasing when the bird is singing, kind of to the same level in a normal bird, but it was the pattern that was gone, that fine temporal structure, and that's what screwed up the bird. He couldn't change his song as well um, in response to audit perturbations of feedback uh, when we did that. What an interesting response. This is really fascinating because I know work from, from my colleague Albrecht Stroh, uh, who, who showed that, you know, in disease models of Alzheimer's, for example, these circuits start to have these mini oscillations somewhere and they kind of probably disrupt all this uh, burst formation and the encoding of information because it's, it's an abnormal pattern that disturbs the pattern formation. So, so that could be really a key to better understand, you know, how wrong oscillations can disturb memory and, and learning and memory. And of course, it's very interesting to see about electrical stimulation and that helps very much in Parkinson. But I think that the stimulation that we do right now is very crude and far off what, what you discovered. So, so that, that's fascinating. Thank you. Now, it would be nice if you could give us also some background on how this story evolved. Stephanie, you... You mentioned you were inspired by Alison Dope, and you know I am an all-time admirer of her work, and which was unfortunately ended way, way too early. And but I'm so glad that she continues to live in this manuscript. And and so it would be nice if we can talk about it, how of the story of this this manuscript here. I think Mimi was at UCSF as a graduate student when I showed up as a fresh green postdoc from physics. And we were both really excited about birdsong. And we had a colleague, Brian Wright, who was also at UCSF at the time and also came from physics, though a different kind of physics. And it was conversations, I believe, with Brian and Mimi, though I'll let Mimi take over this story, part of the story that started the seed of this project very early on. And then we'll come to how we have, you know, tried to sort of do what we think Allison would want at this at each stage of, of revising this work and tried to, you know, we think about her all the time when we think about what would Allison do right now with this, with this uh, abstract, what would Allison do with this concluding paragraph? She's in our, she's in our heads and hearts in many ways because we got to continue this work together. So I'll let Mimi, I'll let Mimi tell the Genesis story perhaps. Well, you know, we, Neil Hessler discovered this context-dependent difference, you know, between variable firing when he's practicing by himself and more precise firing when he's singing to a female trying to excite her and entice her. And Allison was, like lots of other people, thinking about, is, is this variable firing, is it just noise? Is it random? Or is it smart in some way, right? Is it trying to direct the song towards something? And so there were models from many other groups to, that were modeling the activity from this cortical output nucleus as just random noise, right? And so really what we wanted to know is, is there information in the pattern, right? And so 
this began the work with Brian thinking about, can we use information theory to try and figure out what those patterns are? And then Stephanie really took off with it and tried many, many different ways of quantifying this, right? Using new cutting edge techniques for, which she will explain for trying to really dig in and figure out, given the limited data that we have, can we say for certain, is there extra information in the fine temporal patterns? And so, yeah, it took off from there because Stephanie tried, I don't know, five different ways of calculating the information. Um, and they all luckily ended up with the same answer. <laughs> You know, we feel extremely honored at the Journal of Neurophysiology to, to be part of this legacy that really continues to live in, in the two of you and also others that I know from this amazing lab. And so now that you're both faculty, what are the next steps? So can you tell us uh, what are your next projects and what are you conquering now? I think I'll start. One of the things we'd really like to know is what exactly changes in song these particular bursts are directing. So we said at the beginning that we've got male birds in this study who are experts. They've been on the road doing the song for years, say, maybe even literally, right? In some cases, the birds in the colony have been, are you know, getting, getting up there in years. They know their job. And so when they're practicing, they're, they're making very minor adjustments. So I think that if we are able to put a big perturbation to that system, either by studying, as Mimi already mentioned, juvenile birds or birds that are getting some altered auditory feedback, either by design or by deafening, we'll be able to track that mapping from changes in spiking to changes in the, in the song, it, song itself. And I think Mimi can talk a bit more about what's coming up next in that domain, particularly. Can I ask quickly uh, before okay. Mimi goes to her next steps? So as an older person, it's often difficult to, to unlearn something that didn't go well. So your fingering has to change, let's say, in, in a piece. And, and so it would be kind of interesting to see how unlearning these temporal patterns work, especially during the development. I think this is a fascinating, deep deep theoretical question, like theory with a capital T question in neuroscience. What happens to our brains as we learn, as we age, as we embed these patterns and routines that makes them stick so hard that we can't undo it? Is it just kind of a, there's a plastic network and we've dug some really big holes? Or is it that we just don't know particularly well how to climb out or has the whole substrate sort of stiffened? And I think those are the exciting questions of our day. How do you retrain? How is retraining different from initial training? How do we, you know, my fantasy, how do we reopen our critical period so that I can speak whatever language I want with no accent? I want to be able to walk into the cafe in Paris and not have them immediately say, yes, yes, what would you like, American? Um, you know, that, that would be great. So I believe that there's something still left to know. And I think, I think there's obviously got to be some benefit to locking yourself in so that you don't just keep wandering around and learning and relearning and undoing all the things you know, but we need the keys to that, to that particular puzzle. Alison, I have full confidence that, that you will solve it. And I hope you send it to our journal so we can continue this conversation. But now, Mimi, what's the next steps? 
Oh, well, I was just going to build on what both of you said, which is the Songbird system is awesome and unique in the way that you can take a, you know, you can look at learning during development, but you can look at learning in adults, right? In adults who have already learned their song. There have been many labs, uh, Michael Bringer's lab, Michael Fee's lab, where you can perturb auditory feedback and you can do it just at a specific time in song. And you can get the bird to change its song, which is highly stereotyped. You can change, you can get it to change its pitch or the durations of sounds, right? And what's remarkable is that you can drive this and you can hold them at this new pitch, say for days and days. And then once you turn off that perturbation, the bird will go back towards his original baseline. So there's an underlying memory and target that he wants to maintain. He is able to change his song as needed, but he wants to go back. And I think actually, you know, a lot of those experiments are um, laboratory experiments where there's an external negative reinforcement. And so we're driving those changes. But it's that recovery process that I think is so interesting. The bird is using auditory feedback of his own sounds to get back there, right? And so looking at what are the changes in the activity, what's the change in the code, right? Does he accomplish it in the same way, right? Is he gonna get back there using, you know, more sprinkles and enhanced vocabulary or does he have a limited vocabulary? Those are all things that I think are super exciting. And one thing personally for me is I actually, I think about this a lot in terms of aging and, um, you know, this importance of maintaining variability, not to um, learn new skills necessarily, but to maintain your skills, right? So that is one thing that happens with aging, which is we get, you know, our skills kind of deteriorate sometimes. And so I always think, you know, what if you just try different ways of doing the same behavior, right? Instead of, you know, moving my hand this way, I'll move it a different way, still with the same behavioral goal. Will that help me maintain my motor skills, right? And not lose the ability to perform that skill precisely. Can we get, you know, old dogs, can they maintain their tricks, but through different ways? You know, that's what I find fascinating about neuroscience. It really gives you some concrete analogy that pins down a problem. Like for example, I think uh, if you're young, you're not scared of variability, you know, you, you, take on any jitter, no problem, take it on. And then when it gets older, then, you know, oh my God, you know, the ski hill is too too steep and, and I don't want to move a little bit to the side. So I think that the neurons represent this, this fear of variability versus, you know, encouraging us to be variable initially to, to work on that jitter, et cetera. So I, I really think this is a very important study that, that gives us general insights in coding, which is to me, the key question about the brain. So uh, what are the take-home messages, important take-home messages that you want to have the readers remember? Who wants to go first? I can start off. I would say performance and practice are different, not just for humans, but also for birds. And when you pry open the black box, you can find things that surprise you. Not everything that looks like noise is noise. Temporal patterns in the brain matter. Fantastic. Mimi. Take a message. I think Stephanie said it right <laughs> and well, which is that looking really carefully at the firing patterns seems to be critical for understanding how the brain is able to accomplish both maintaining a behavior and also being flexible and changing that behavior. And so I think 
Stephanie said it right, which is sometimes it looks noisy, but there might be signal in that noise that we just haven't figured out. I would add one more thing, if I may. One last thought on the take home is that in neuroscience, a tight collaboration between a theorist and experimentalist and an experimentalist can open up whole new avenues that you couldn't have done alone. I could not have done this project without Mimi. Mimi could not have done this project. Well, maybe she could have, but maybe not without me. But together we really um, brought the special sauce together to make this to make this project happen. And of course, we wouldn't have been able to do this without either of us, without Allison, Dope, and Brian Wright. We're very, very happy that to be able to complete this work with them. Stephanie, you said exactly what I wanted to say. You know, it's this magic of multidisciplinary team to get a crazy physicist and, and hardworking experimentalist together and, and get the, the data, you know, inspire your work. So very, very fascinating. It was a wonderful pleasure to talk to you. And I'm really ready for some ice cream with some sprinkles on it. And uh, you got me there. And yeah, thanks so much for, for doing this. And I wish you all the very best and hope you attract amazing multidisciplinary students. And I'm sure it will, will happen. And don't forget to submit to our journal. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is dedicated to co-authors, Dr. Allison Dope and Dr. Brian Wright. It was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage. Hey, Zebra Finch, tell us what you thought.